Hello. Good morning. Steve, you're, you're wasted as a church pastor. You should be in sales. You made GDPR sound attractive. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, lovely to see you. Before we get underway, I, I actually, um, actually felt that God wants to speak to a particular group of people here this morning, if that's okay. And um, as I was preparing this week, I felt like God said to me that he particularly wants to speak to the grandparents in the room. And so if you're, you feel comfortable with this, if you're a grandparent... Um, would you mind just standing to your feet for a moment? Because I believe that God wants to speak to you, if that's all right. Wow. Great. What a lot of grandparents we've got in the room. That is brilliant. Um, and uh, I was reminded of this, this verse. I just want to read, read over you. And it's, um, it's referenced in, in Acts uh, at, at Pentecost, but it actually comes from Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 28. And it says this, And it shall come to pass... Afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. The point of that verse is everyone encounters God. And I felt like for you this morning that there is a fresh um, commissioning, a fresh assignment coming from the Lord for you. So if you're just near somebody that stood, would you just perhaps stand and lay a hand on the shoulder with them, and um, I feel like this. I feel like there's there's an anointing coming on you right now to leave a generational legacy. That's that's the phrase I see over you right now. Generational legacy. I feel like um, the Lord wants to say to you, don't focus on leaving a material legacy for the next generation. Focus instead on leaving a spiritual legacy for the next generation. And right now, there's, there's a particular anointing coming on you, and, and it's the anointing to pray for the return of the prodigals. Right now. Right now. There's an anointing coming on you to pray for the return of the prodigals. And I see you, I see you having uh, new disciplines in your life, new daily prayer disciplines where you pray for the prodigals. And um, the Lord wants to say to you, I've taken you through the, through the thick and the thin of life. I've taken you through the thick and the thin of life, and you know how to persevere. And in this season now, I'm teaching you how to persevere in prayer for the younger generation. And the Lord is, is equipping you to shift by spiritual means what you cannot do through human influence. And I declare over you that the, the anointing to pray for the return of the prodigals, to, to shift things in the heavenlies, to pray those that are distant from the Lord back in through this anointing that's coming on you. Some of you, um, some of you thought that, um, that you're into retirement now, and the Lord wants to say to you, there's no such thing. You won't find it in the Bible. But rather, there's a fresh assignment for you. There's a fresh assignment, and we declare over you this fresh assignment. And we declare as a, as a church family that we are so grateful to God for you, that he is raising up this generation of prayer warriors, those that are going to leave a spiritual legacy for the next generation. And he's saying that you, what you've learned about perseverance is now going to come into full effect because you're going to see what it is to persevere through and see those prodigals returned. And, and you're going to reap a harvest even in, in your grandparental role. And we bless what the Lord is doing over you in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Can we just thank the Lord for what he's doing? That's great. Thank you so much. That's great. 
bless you guys. Just keep receiving. I, I, I hope that, that serves you well and bless you. So, great. Well, it, it's brilliant to be here with you this morning. Obviously, we weren't here uh, last week because um, a whole load of us were at this Catalyst Festival. Uh, there was about 8,000 people camping in the fields, and uh, we had 140 or so from the King's Arms uh, camping. Just wave a hand at me if you were one of those 140 camping. Brilliant. Well done, guys. Great is your reward in heaven. Um, I also know that a whole load of us came as, as day visitors, so just wave a hand in the air if you came as day visitors. Yeah, there's some reward, um, but it's not quite the same, but, you know, some of you watched it online. Yeah, you might get something, but it won't be much. But anyway, those hardened people, we, there was a bond created across our campus, uh, but it's great to be back together again, and uh, we're picking up uh, this series that we've started around multiplying disciples, really off the back of uh, Phil's new book, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the Word tool, which is all about unpacking scripture together. And uh, Steve referenced, as you heard in the announcements, that we've had a lot of communications, many of us, over email over these past few weeks, haven't we? And that there's all these emails coming through and people desperate to stay, keep you on their mailing list. You know? And essentially, they're asking for permission to fill up your inbox with junk. And so I've taken great delight in just pressing delete to each and every one of those. I haven't got offered a T-shirt, I have to say, but I, I might accept that. Um, so there's lots of communication coming in our, our way at the moment. Very often communication that's sort of un, unwanted, that we're, we're not really interested in. But it's worth recognising too that we also get communication that we definitely do want to receive. Um, because we love to hear from people who love us, don't we? Um, I brought with me this morning... Uh, these are just a few of the letters and cards that Emma wrote to me whilst we were dating, and I've kept them now for 22 years. And um, uh, the reason I've kept them is because they were to me, and they were about me, and they were from someone I love very much. Uh, in the same way, um, Emma has kept every one of the letters that I wrote her during that period too, both of them. So they <laughs> serve as a serve as a great delight to her, and she, she treasures them very much. Um, <laughs> we hang on to things like this, don't we? Because we want to hear from the person. Uh, and in the same way, uh, pretty much the only common denominator across this room is that we're all here gathered today because we want to hear what the Father has to say to us. Isn't it? That, that is pro probably the only common denominator in the room. And... Uh, in our series on multiplying disciples, it would be incomplete if we didn't look at the place of the Word of God. Because it's, if you like, not just one love letter, but 66 books made up of love letters about what the most important person in the universe says about himself and says about us and the way he wants to relate to us. And so there's no way that we could do this series and not look at the significance of the Word of God. Now, obviously, we want to acknowledge the now prophetic Word of God, just like we've been hearing through the meeting, and that God speaks in a thousand different ways. He speaks through creation and music and coincidences and dozens and dozens of different other ways to us. But if you like, the Bible is his love letter to you and I. And without doubt, it's the most enduring way that he speaks to us. And we want to be people of the Word and the Spirit, don't we, here this morning? So we're going to look for a little bit this morning at the place of the Word of God in multiplying disciples. Not just that we might grow, but how we might use the Word of God to disciple others and grow others. Because the aim is maturity, isn't it? 
And obviously, we want, as we start out, to be confident in the Bible that we've got. We want to be uh, confident that it's reliable, that it's authentic, that it's trustworthy. Now, obviously, this is a whole topic in itself. You could spend a series on this alone. But what I want to do just briefly at the outset is to give you some highlights and some headlines in terms of the authenticity of Scripture. Um, so this is just coming at you sort of hard, fast, and continuously, okay? Here we go. Here's, here's some things that back up this Bible that we read. Uh, we have multiple manuscripts, okay? So there are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, over 8,000 Latin manuscripts, over 1,000 other manuscripts in different languages, and over 32,000 quotations from early writers. I know, because I, I counted them. There's a, there's a heck of a lot of, of, of manuscripts that back up, the, that validate our Bible that we use today. To give you some kind of contrast, uh, if you look at other early writers, Greek and Latin authors such as Plato and Aristotle, you might have between 1 and 20 manuscripts for those writings, whereas we have literally thousands for Scripture. Not only do we have multiple manuscripts, we've got multiple external sources um, in terms of archaeology and archaeological evidence. Uh, This man, Tony Marriott from the University of Oxford, says this, Uh, Biblical criticism in the 19th century made many damaging claims that would completely overthrow the integrity of the Bible. But the explosion of archaeological knowledge in the 20th century reversed almost all of those claims. Out of the multitude of archaeological discoveries related to the Bible, excavations in all these different places, uh, help provide background information that fits well with the Genesis stories of the patriarchal period. In other words, what's he saying? He's, He's saying we've got archaeological evidence literally dug up from the ground that backs up the validity of the Bible. Not only do we have that, but we have multiple eyewitnesses as well. Particularly when it comes to the New Testament, we have a variety of different eyewitness accounts about the same incidents, both from inside the Bible but from outside. So secular writers like Tacitus and Josephus. We also have multiple prophecies. This is the bit that really blows my mind. Um, There are multiple, and by multiple I mean about 700 or so, Old Testament prophecies that were written before Jesus was born predicting what would happen in Jesus' birth and life. So, so events that Jesus could, there's no way he could humanly have had control over. I've got just a few of them on the screen. So one's like he was born of a virgin. He didn't have much control over that, humanly speaking. Or like how much money, the 30 pieces of silver that was paid to Judas at his betrayal. Or how the soldiers gambled for his clothing. There's just so much evidence to back up that this is a unique and incredible book. Charles Spurgeon said this of the Bible, which I think I just love. It just kind of sums it up. It says this, The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. (laughs) I love that. And that's essentially what we've got in Scripture. It, it, It stands apart from every other single ancient writings. It's the most remarkable book in all of human history. It is God-inspired and God-ordained. So it's the most incredible of all books, and I'm sure all of us here this morning would agree with that. And yet, for many of us, if we're honest, it also proves to be a really challenging task to read it from time to time, myself included. I think if we're honest, um, for many of us, we would tend to divide our Bible into two. Not Old Testament and New Testament, but into two categories. I think we tend to divide our Bibles into our go-to passages, 
and I'll rarely visit passages. So our go-to passages would be the ones that are familiar to us, that we like, that we enjoy reading, and probably give us some nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. So, you know, we'll have bits from the Proverbs, and uh, we might have passages from the Gospels, and we've all got our favorite Psalms, haven't we? And we'll go to those, and we'll read those regularly and consistently. And I want to say right from the outset, there's nothing wrong with having your go-to passages. You know, we need them. We need to draw on those at places that will give us strength and encouragement, particularly in times of adversity. Now, just this last weekend gone, we were camping at Catalyst. But then um, early in the morning, about 5 a.m., uh, my daughter started going down with severe abdominal pains. And uh, so I got on my iPhone and I found out where the nearest A&E was and rushed her into Warwick uh, A&E department. And to cut a long story short, they did all kinds of tests. And by uh, half 10, 11 that night, uh, they were operating on her to remove her appendix. Um, so Emma and I were in this tiny little sort of waiting room and they told us that the operation would be about an hour and a half, so fine. Two and a half hours later, we still haven't heard anything. And I find myself pacing backwards and forwards in this little room like some sort of caged animal. And I, I could feel, the best way I could describe it is I could feel my mind slipping, slipping into a whole load of unhelpful scenarios that weren't going to do me any good. Anybody kind of relate to that? You can just feel it drifting. And I knew I needed to pull it back to a place of faith. So I pull out my phone, and I look up at Psalm 17, which is one of my go-to passages. And I read these, these words, and I, I sort of read them uh, out loud to myself. And I said this, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand, and I'm praying, save Anna by your right hand. Those who take refuge in their foes, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide Anna in the shadow of your wings. And I'm praying this kind of thing over and over again. And I can feel my mind drifting back to a place of faith and to where it needed to be. At Ten minutes later, praise God and for his goodness through surgeons and the NHS, we heard word from the theatre that all was well. And I used Psalm 17 as my go-to passage, because I love the image of being under the shadow of his wings. So don't get me wrong, we need our go-to passages, and we all have them. But I want to suggest to you that there's a drawback to the go-to passages, and the danger of the go-to passages is we don't go anywhere else. We just stay in those things that are familiar, and there's a risk with that, because what ends up happening is, is we end up if unwittingly picking and choosing which bits of the Bible feed us. And, and we, we, we end up slightly distorted in our view of God. Or even worse, we end up with a God of our own making because we've selected the bits of the Bible that more appeal to us. Because we ha secondly, we have these rarely visited passages, which might be as much as sort of 90% of the Bible that we leave untouched. And the, the risk is there that we end up with this one-dimensional view of God. And we perhaps leave aside the bits that are harder to understand for us and things that come from a different culture or setting to the one that we're used to. It's a bit like when our kids were little, and we would try our best to feed them a balanced diet. Yeah? And you'd, you'd present a plate in front of them, and it would have all the major food groups included, but it would always be the, the chicken nuggets and the smiley potato faces that would be eaten first. Anybody, and then they would do the old trick of they'd cut up the broccoli and just sort of move it to different parts of the plates in the belief that mum wouldn't notice if it was spread out. She believed that some of it had been eaten. 
The, the point is, I was presenting my children something that was uh, taken as a whole was good for them. It was a balanced diet. And if they only ever lived off chicken nuggets and smiley potato faces, well, then they were going to be malnourished in some kind of way. You know, we reached the point of desperation where we were willing to include ketchup as, as a vegetable. You know, that was the point we were, we were reached. And, and, and my children would just, we'd have this battle and this fight. And, you know, you'd think we'd serve them up this. Coming up on the screen here, this is, this is a vegetarian haggis. Um, which I think probably tastes as good as it looks, um, really, which is to say awful. I think actually this is illegal in South Africa. I'm not sure. This kind of food, that's what, that would be my guess because there's no steak there. Um, but the truth is that Bi the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all of Scripture is God-breathed. And when it says all, it means all. It means the whole lot. And so what I want us to do this morning is to recognize that all of the Bible is a gift to us, even the bits that we might find slightly harder to digest. And in the time remaining, I just want to try and convince you of that by looking at a very short little bit of Scripture, just in the time remaining for us, um, to show you that all of it can be relevant and helpful to us. And in order to do that, I, I want, to, want to look at a very brief passage from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus um, chapter 19. And uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen. And um, if we're honest, Leviticus, for some of us, can feel like the vegetarian haggis. You know, that's, it could feel like that. Um, Leviticus is the point where many Bible in a Year reading programs come to an end, isn't it? Yeah? It, it's like the elephant graveyard for, for Bible reading programs. And, uh, but I want to say to you that it's all God-breathed and useful for us. And we're going to use this word tool, which stands for what does it say? What observations can we make? Is it what does it um, reveal about me or God? And D, what are we meant to do as a result, okay? And Leviticus is really a book uh, all about how God's holiness and purity means that we cannot be casual in our relationship with him, that, that we need to take God seriously. And it's one of those passages that helps mature us. It's one of those books that help mature us as a believer because, yes, we want to be deepening our sense of intimacy, but also, too, we want to be deepening and growing in our sense of awe and wonder at this God that we worship. So let me very briefly read it through it to you and, and convince you of this, of this truth that it's all God-breathed and helpful to us. It says this, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. You're taking this in. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal, do not deceive or cheat one another. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbor. Do not make uh, your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Okay? So there's lots in here, but it was actually this first section about the harvest that I felt the Holy Spirit just sort of illuminate to, to me uh, one morning in February many years ago. And um, let's start with the W of this tool to try and help us, which stands for what does it say? Um, well, it says, uh, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It's all about the way you go about harvesting, um, and the same with the vineyards. At which point, I might think to myself, well, I'm, I'm not a farmer, so this isn't relevant to me. I don't even have an allotment. You know? I, don't, I don't harvest crops from a field. What I do is I go into a cut-priced German supermarket, and I run along the aisles, and I fill it with pizza and chicken noodles, which is what teenagers eat. And then, to be honest, I make the mistake very often of going down the special offers aisle. 
um, where I will end up putting in my trolley uh, things that I don't actually need but are too cheap not to buy. Does anybody else do that? So, so I, I save like £3.90 on bread and milk but spend £52.80 on a new smoothie maker and a pair of welding gloves because they were really cheap. I don't have a welder, I don't know how to weld but they were too cheap not to buy. Yeah, yeah. So that's, my, that's how I harvest, all right? Um, but that's where faith comes in, because I'm by faith believing this has good things for me, okay? A quick search reveals that this isn't the only place where it talks about leaving the grain at the edges of your field for the poor. It says pretty much the same thing in Leviticus 20, 23, and then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 19, it says this. When you're harvesting your crops... And forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field. Don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So it's repeated three times, which means it must be really important to us. That's where the O part of the tool comes in, which stands for observation. What does this tell me? What do I observe about it? Well, it tells me that God is interested in the workplace. He's not just interested in what happens in the temple. He's interested in what happens in the workplace. And there's not this sacred and secular divide, but actually God's interested in all of it. And the way that we conduct ourselves in our workplace matters very much to God. And it shows that he is watching. Secondly, it tells us that the harvesters are instructed to leave the grain in the fields. I think that's significant. We're going to come on to that in the book of Ruth in, a mo- in, in the, the second part in a moment. And it reminds me of the book of Ruth. Those of you that have ever read that, it's a beautiful love story. And that is how Ruth is provided for. She's a Moabitess. She's not an Israelite. She comes in and she does this, what they call the gleanings, picking up the leftovers from the field. And that's how God provides for her. And then she meets Boaz, goes through this rather strange romance and marries him. So in that... In our day, if a woman is interested in a guy, she'll touch his arm and laugh at his jokes. In that day, she went and lay at his feet under his blanket in the middle of the night. Just to be clear, I'm not recommending that for our culture, just to be clear. Send the wrong messages, and ladies, you definitely want to stay away from men's feet. But so it's, it's, you can see how God uses it um, to, to, to help provide for, for Ruth and, and her mother, mother-in-law later in the story. Okay, and then also, as well as that, we've got the context as well. The context helps me. So that helps me observe things. The passages following, verses following, are all about not stealing. So I, I'm wondering if this thing about leaving grain at the edges of your field and not stealing are connected. That if you don't leave the grain at the edges of the field, are you in some way robbing the poor? So that's what I observe. And then thirdly, we come to the third part of the word tool, which is this. What does it reveal about God or about me? Well, the first thing it reveals is that God cares about the underdogs. Just from this obscure passage in Leviticus 19, I can see that God cares about the marginalized. The ancient world was a tough place to live, particularly if you were an orphan, a widow, or a foreigner, because you had no family network to support you. What does God do? He institutes the first ever welfare system. It stops people being forced to beg or to sell themselves into slavery or even worse, prostitute themselves to, say, to care for themselves. In this passage, God is saying, I care about those who society forgets. And he commands the Israelites to do this because they too were once in this position. They too were once in slavery. 
And that tells me that the freedom I've gained in my life isn't just for me. The freedom I've gained in my life is for others' benefit too. And it's just the same for you. The freedom God has given you isn't just for you. It's for the blessing of others. It's for the extension of his kingdom. And the danger is that when we've got to a place of stability and security in our lives, financially or relationally or emotionally, we think we've got there and we just stabilize things for ourselves. When actually God's saying, no, no, I want you to look beyond your borders because I've got bigger plans for you. But this is the bit that particularly struck me as I reflected on what it reveals about God. It shows this. Notice how the Israelites are instructed to care for the poor amongst them. They're not instructed to gather up all of the grain, go take it back to the village, make bread, and then give it out to the poor. They're instructed to leave it in the field so that those who are physically able can go and harvest it for themselves. The Lord is saying that he wants the Israelites to give people a hand up, not a handout. Handouts create dependency. It gives people nowhere to go because they've got to come back for the next thing. But God wants us to give the poor not just food, but opportunity. The chance to contribute towards their own welfare wherever they're physically able. It shows me this too, that there's dignity in work. That God wants to give people the opportunity to achieve something, to gain some kind of satisfaction from it. Uh, Many of us uh, struggle in the workplace, but equally too, we recognize that there's dignity in it. There's a sense of achievement and satisfaction that comes from that. I remember even my first ever job. My first ever job was um, I worked in a a greengrocer's as a a Saturday boy. And um, what what they did was they had an alleyway down the side of the greengrocer's and they would get all the rotting fruit and the leftover cardboard from the boxes. And during the course of the week, they would just chuck it into the alleyway. And then it was my job to go and clear it up afterwards So on a Saturday. So if you can imagine, it was just rotting fruit and cardboard. And I had to clear the whole up. I mean, obviously, it was, it was like a cafeteria for rats out the back there. It was grim, really, really bad. But that enabled me to save up for my first car. I remember buying my first car. It was, it was an orange Talbot Horizon. Uh, I've got a picture of one on the screen here for you. Um, I would say, if I'm honest, that there is, there is dignity in work, but there, there isn't much dignity in a Talbot Horizon now, if I'm honest. There's not, there's not a lot there. But I remember the satisfaction when I went and got the keys, and I felt like um, my labor has resulted in some benefit. And then I was actually able to lend it out the first weekend I owned it. That's because our work is meant to achieve something. And then lastly, having made those observations, well then, what are we meant to do about it? This is where we apply the word of God to our lives. It's where God reveals something about his intentions, something of God's heart that we're meant to put into practice, even if it's just the principles that we're meant to apply from the Old Testament. And this truth has helped shape my life. So for instance, the way I raise my children now, I'm wanting my children to learn to play their part to make a contribution. Because as society around us becomes more entitlement-orientated, I want my children to know what it is to make a difference. Uh, People around us more and more are aware of their rights from others rather than their responsibilities to others. And so I want my children to learn the satisfaction of doing a job really well and making a contribution to the family. So whether that's help with uh, washing up or uh, hoovering the lounge or rewiring the fuse board, you know, all the sorts of things that 12-year-olds could be doing. So it shapes the way I raise my children. But secondly, when it comes to church, it means that when people come on our joining course, I'm wanting them to serve. Why? 
Well, that's because making a contribution is part of belonging. And I want everybody to feel like they belong, they belong here. Even the most menial task has dignity in it, where we can provide opportunities for people in this building through our conferencing and other things. We do it because we want to give people a hand up, not a hand out. But lastly, probably the biggest application from me reading Leviticus 19 was in our work for the poor. Um, at that time, we were only providing accommodation uh, for the homeless. Uh, but I read Leviticus 19 that morning, and for the first time, I realized that it's not enough just to give someone a bed. You have to give them a chance as well. That we're not just made to consume, but we're made to contribute. And uh, I had a meeting with Ali Green, who was overseeing the project uh, at the time. And uh, as we sat there together, I explained to her what I felt God was showing me through this scripture. And she said, it's funny because I've been feeling the very same thing prophetically from God. There was a symmetry about what God was leading us into. And out of that conversation, we started our first ever Meaningful Activities course uh, that we launched and that later became our Pathways program run by the amazing Sarah Blakey, who you heard uh, pray during during the meeting. And uh, it started out with a -a build-a-bike scheme where in a deal with the local uh, train stations, we were able to get abandoned bicycles and uh, some of the people we were working with would come in, they would learn bicycle maintenance, repair the bike, how to fix it, and then at the end of the course, they would receive that bike. And then it moved into a job club, um, four-week money management and budgeting course, uh, cookery and food hygiene, sports and drama, and the list goes on and on. And literally now it's at the point where hundreds of people a year are receiving support and encouragement from this. That's Leviticus 19 for the 21st century. You see, the Bible applies to you and me. The principle for each one of us is to remember where God has brought you from. What slavery has he freed you from? It's not a bad thing to think, if I hadn't become a Christian, where would my life be at right now? What kind of mess would you be in? What kind of things would you be enslaved to or addicted to? Because that, in turn, motivates us to help others. The other application, it means if you're a manager or employer, well, maybe it's worth asking yourself, how can I invest in the people around me? People are precious to God, and part of his kingdom restoration is the restoration of dignity to people. If you're retired, unemployed, or unable to work, then the Father wants you to know that there's still purpose for your life. You were born to make a difference, whether that's volunteering in some way, serving the community, or even writing letters to Christians who are in prison from your sickbed to encourage them. Whatever it is, God has a purpose for your life. You're not here by accident. You're here on assignment. So as we've looked at Leviticus 19, um, I want to suggest to you that even one of the most challenging books of the Bible has life-changing truth contained within it that's available for you and I. There are all kinds of resources out there that can help us. And I really want to flag just this series up to you. Um, this is known as the Straight to the Heart series. And as you can see, it talks got books on Solomon, Psalms, uh, Revelation. The list goes on and on. I'm reading partway through Revelation at the moment. I did it whilst I was camping. It seemed appropriate to read about the end of the world whilst I was camping. And so, so there's re- resources like that that you can get hold of. They're available in ebook as well. But also, if you've got access to the internet, I've put on a slide here. There are literally hundreds of free resources. You might even want to take a photo on your phone of the different resources that are available there that you can access, get for free. Because we want each one of us to be continually maturing and growing 
in our love for the Word of God. Because love for the Word of God is a way of deepening and maturing our faith here. I guess my question to you as we land this morning is, what's the next step for you? Is it, is it that you, you, know, you, you never really even open your Bible, you never even look at it on your phone, and the starting place is, well, get some go-to passages to start out. Or is it that you have some familiar go-to passages and you don't ever venture beyond that? And maybe God is calling you deeper, perhaps to use one of these commentaries to begin to unpack the Word of God to you so that you can grow and deepen and fireproof your faith for the future. Because God was wanting, there's an encounter available for each one of us in his word, and he's warning us to access it. Why don't we pray together? Do you want to stand with me? I'm just going to pray. Yeah, Spirit of God, just come and rest on us, I pray. Thank you, Father. Perhaps you just want to close your eyes and connect with him for a moment. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. You know, in, in a way, this is one of, those, one of those talks that's kind of the bread and butter of Christian life. And um, we, can just, we can just say, yeah, I, I kind of know that. But I want to ask you this morning, maybe you know it, but are you doing it? How's, where's your love for the Word of God at right now? Is it, is it, is it something that wanes and you... You know, you maybe put on a worship CD or something like that, and that's how you connect with God. I believe the Father's saying, I'm drawing you deeper. There are encounters to be had. One of the tragedies, as I reflect on it, is that I wonder how many more Leviticus 19 moments I could have had if I'd only made the time. So maybe in your heart right now, why don't you make a decision as to what your next step is? You know, we believe in the power of ministry, but the most powerful ministry times are actually when we make a godly decision and then live it out. So what's your godly decision this morning? You know, it contained within the verses of your Bible are all that you need to live an abundant, fruitful life. it's, It's God's manual for your life. And it's time to start reading the manual. Spirit of God, come, we pray. I pray, Father, for, uh, for disciplines that were sustainable for our lives. And I pray, Father, too, for... Uh, each of us who have children or influence over others, I pray, Father, for, for wisdom in terms of how to use the Bible to disciple others, Lord God. Let us take others on the journey with us, we pray, that we might be a people of, of the Spirit, yes, but a people of the Word too, Lord God. Let that beautiful joining come together, we pray, in our lives, that we might, we might love you with all of our heart, and that means our mind too. We'd love you with our mind as we read our Bibles, Lord God, we pray. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father.